white supremacist great. children now becoming rappers. <laughs> like, gag. <laughs> it's just like I'm the Confederacy now got rappers, they kids as rappers now. Two, three hundred years later. It's just not the Confederacy. It's, it's just that's why y'all don't see me on here too much. Because I'm really just trying to get myself together. Because a lot of this shit be really gagging me on a serious mental level where I'm like, white people talk all the time, Erica. Every what is the main thing? After you just spent your blood, sweat, and tears, three hours doing a workshop, what is the first thing they say? Okay, but like, what can we do? What can we do? <laughs> and you know what some of them say? Some of them argue with me about what they can do. Yeah, you tell them what to do, and they be like, why? <laughs> Give up power. Why? Why? <laughs> Reparations. Why? I work hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then again, here we are. But they, but they say, what can we do? And do you know some of them said? Wow, it's been 400 years of subjugation against black people um, that I can, I benefit the house that I live in, that I was born into, the station that I was born into as a white person. Man, it's so hard what happened to Breonna Taylor. Man, that's just crazy what happened to George Floyd. I think I'm going to become a rapper. (laughs) Black people, we over here racking our brains, educating, (laughs) on the front lines, protesting, creating community gardens. Can make create community groups. White people. I don't think I'm gonna write a rap song. Mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna go put a Supreme puffer jacket on and I'm gonna walk down Canal Street and I'm gonna go get me some vapes mm-hmm. and I'm gonna start rapping. Black Telling it, telling it. Go tell it on the mountain and all the rest of that shit. Black people speaking truth to power. And who better to do that with than Liz? Liz! Hello, hello. Our friend who's been with us four years with this project. This is our fifth year. So this will be the fifth time that we have bothered Liz to come and talk to y'all. It is always (laughs) such a pleasure. I love this so much. It's it's definitely something I look forward to every Black History Month is being able to take part in this project. Well, welcome back, Liz, my darling. Yes. I need people to understand that Black People <laughs> Tell Black History, I would say 99% of it is our friends, like friends in real life. Yes. <laughs> Y'all have such great friends. I, like brilliant, brilliant friends that we just want to hear from mm. all the time, yes. but especially inside of this project. So Liz, just for the few people who do not know you, who may have not ever seen this project, can you intro yourself and also include pronouns, please? Sure, sure. So my name is Liz Thompson. Pronouns are she, her. And I am based in Washington, D.C., but I'm like very wonderfully taken up this project recently in this new role um, as a development manager working at an organization called Cave Conum. They are based in Brooklyn, one of the longest tenured organizations representing Black poets. Uh, They've been around since like 1996, I believe. And so uh, my role there is mostly grant writing, cultivation, uh, just general development work, fundraising. That's my jam. (laughs) And um, I I just, I love being a part of this project. And so I'm happy to be back here. We love you and we love you being a part of this project. One thing that Liz is not saying is that Liz is also an educator 
of many years and also is just a veritable cauldron of knowledge about how our U.S. educational institutions work. Each year of Black People Telling Black History, I look forward to Liz's um, myth-busting project about Brown versus Board of Education, uh, one of our landmark uh, constitutional or Supreme Court um, decisions and cases that has been shrouded in a lot of mystery for some people, but it also has, due to some white supremacist narrative, narrative control by our government, has been shrouded in a lot of falsehoods. So there has there's much that I didn't know about Brown versus Board of Education, um, despite being also an educator and being in the Bay Area, which has a lot of ed tech, like educational mm-hmm. tech, nonprofit, like educational reform organizations um, that sort of come in and try to, you know, swoop in and make black children, you know, help them get more money from donors and all their philanthropic pursuits under the guise of, you know, we're going to help reform the already fucked up public school system that, you know, they're, they're saying that given that your work focuses on lifting the veil and mask off of educational institutions, pretending that their site's a radical, desegregated utopia of change. Can you speak to how that's not the case and to why Brown versus Board of Education is so popular to talk about? Absolutely. Um, And yes, thank you for (laughs) bringing in a bit more of my uh, background. A a lot of my professional experience has been working in like education administration. And uh, both my parents were educators. I grew up around a lot of Black teachers, especially Black principals. Um, And I, I knew that I wanted to work in schools, but that I wasn't particularly interested in being a teacher, just that I I always felt that there was a lot of other responsibility of what it took to actually run a school. And so working in school administration, you kind of get to see that regardless of the population of the students, the administration, the people making the big decisions, the donors, the people making legislation, Mm -hmm. by and large are white men. And as a result, you kind of run into the same issues that you would uh, in any other field that's dominated by the decisions of cishet white men. Um, And so I really became curious as I started doing doctoral research on private education, uh, the history of private schools. I became very interested in just the narrative about desegregation, about Brown v. Board education and um, how essentially it erased a long history of uh, safe spaces, privileged spaces for Black learning. Um, It erased the history of HBCUs and how we had our own philanthropic communities and systems as Black people to support Black education and Black educators. Uh, You'll often see statistics around the lack of Black male teachers, for instance, in schools. And again, these are just all holdovers from the fact that many of these schools were shut down, uh, defunded uh, during this sort of transitory period between uh, desegregation, well, I guess segregation and desegregation, which we know is a failed project. Schools are still very much uh, segregated to this day, public schools. And a lot of that has to do with the creation and uh, somewhat underhanded funding of private schools in the U.S. Mm. Mm. 
And how does that reveal itself, this, um, that sort of more underground, behind the scenes, more bureaucratic way of making sure our school systems are segregated, not even just making sure that they're segregated, but that to do nothing about the segregated nature of our schools because they still are segregated i think yeah. that the myth around brown versus board of education is that yes. they were they're no longer segregated mm-hmm. like now it's they're completely integrated and everybody's all together and everybody's receiving the same instruction and the same lessons and that is just so far from the truth as ebony and i are in new york city which is one of the most segregated school systems in the country, mm-hmm. right? And people don't know that, right? They think, oh, New York City is just this liberal, I don't know, a, a melting pot bullshit. And that's the, this is where you would get the best education. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, because I, I do think that people believe that Brown versus Board of Education fixed education. Like mm-hmm. there was nothing else that we needed to do after that. <laughs> Right. It's very, yes, uh, to the point about New York State. Yes, in New York City, the school system there, it is like a case study at this point in modern day segregation. Um, And it's true that the myth around Brown v. Board of Education and it being the sort of catch-all solution, uh, they essentially just bust Black students to white schools, drop them off. We've seen the photos, we've seen the pictures of these students being harassed, of parents showing up to protest, of the National Guard being called in to escort 10-year-olds to the fifth grade. I mean, it is wild what we call success um, in passing this legislation is just, uh, we know, we know that that really just agitated a certain, you know, section of the country, particularly the South. And I mean, so 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, right, Mm -hmm. a Supreme Court decision passed. By 1958, private school enrollment in the South like increased <laughs> by more than like 250,000 students. It's like to, to that period to 1965, it was about a million. There are about a million white students in private schools in reaction to this legislation being passed, to the Supreme Court decision. Um, there was something like over $3 million of tax dollars uh, that were funneled into grants and scholarships for students Mm. to attend private school. And so there's just, there were all these underground ways, again, these underhanded ways. There was no mention maybe of race or racial segregation or all white public school, but essentially, or all white private school, but essentially, particularly in the South, there just, there were so many um, attempts to undermine the uh, mandate to integrate schools. And when each one of those sort of fell away one by one, the the solution to that was, okay, let's just defund these public schools. Let's take all of our students, our, our children, our dollars with us and just create private schools instead that also are not sort of beholden to uh, legislation for for public schooling. And so, I mean, you really think about it, it creates its own ecosystem. And so many of the private schools that we sort of know of today were established or at least gained their greatest funding 
during that period between like 1950 Wait, to 1965. Would you say that charter schools are doing the same? Yes. Uh, this whole conversation about school choice, about charter schools, um, I mean, I think one thing that's pretty interesting, I mean, because charter schools, I know it's it's hot button, but the idea that there can ever be school choice in such an, you know, an unequal and equitable sort of system is false. It's a pipe dream, um, and it's a way to kind of get around what some of the, the real challenges of what would happen to sort of dismantle the fact that something like over 70% of all mm. classroom teachers are white women. It's like, who, who wants to upend that? Who wants to have that conversation to say, okay, well, we need to fire <laughs> about 60, 70% of our workforce uh, that identify in this particular category, because we know that sort of preschool to prison mm -hmm. pipeline, it begins with higher rates of suspension in class, you know, higher rates of discipline and things like officers in the classrooms. And so when they kind of run out of all of these solutions, uh, and there's a, a, a much focused, um, a much more focused effort to reveal these inequities. Charter schools now become this other, uh, they want to get away from the private school, the sort of stigma around private school. And so charter schools now evolve as this other solution. But again, we know none of these things address the, the true issue at the heart of it. And it's that white people want to invest in a white future and will fund that in a way that they can control and private schools are the best avenue to do that. And so regardless of the conversation of what's going to happen with charter schools or private schools, I'm sorry, charter schools or public schools, all of these, these are for people of color to fight amongst themselves about. Right. And then we leave the big conversations, the big dollars to these private institutions that are then feeders to schools, to uh, the private Ivy League, you know, institutions, higher education institutions as well. And so um, it, it's another way of kind of engendering a scarcity mindset as well. I think some of the issues, particularly that have happened, for instance, in the New York public school system have been uh, pretty vehement fights between, you know, PTAs, particularly of Asian American and Black American students. And, you know, that's a discourse in and of itself. But again, it's just creating that scarcity mindset that pits BIPOC folks against one another so that folks don't have time. Yeah. As we know, people just don't have the time to go and after not only the that, They don't have the time, but there's also this idea that in order to sort of be a big fish, you would need to dispose of Black people and Black students. Um, and in New York, one of the big things, and I think it was Stuyvesant High School, where you saw a lot of Asian and white parents saying, you know what, um, we don't want to eliminate these type of testing standards for admission, because then that will then open up students who don't have what it takes. And all that is is dog whistling for Black students. Now, this yep. is that black, if you have yes. too many black students, yes. that's going to bring down the prestige yep. of that particular school. Yep. Yeah. You know. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, the, the testing, the testing question and issue was very much a hot button issue over and and what's sad about it is that it sort of played into stereotypes that I know many 
Asian Americans have come to try and dismantle themselves about the idea of the model minority, of the idea of testing as the only measure of success um, and intellect. And so it has people really undermining their own best interests in order to uh, uphold a standard that white people are not holding themselves to these testing and all of you know, that's what operation varsity blues and everything was about this idea that the standards we set for, Oh, you have to be a great student athlete. Sure. Maybe, you know, this black student has to be a great student athlete, but this white student is just, Mm -hmm. you know, their parents are going to pay some coach somewhere who's going to give them a tennis scholarship and so on and so forth. And they don't have to be a good tennis player or Mm -hmm. a good student, and they're going to be just fine. And so the meritocracy, that conversation is just, again, it's left to sort of, it's sort of scraps on the table. Um, In in reality, it's not what's ultimately going to uh, create any sort of fairness in the system. Yes. Yeah. It makes me think of when I was studying for my SAT, that I didn't know that there was like the Kaplan and the Princeton courses. So yeah, SAT testing and most of the standardized testing, um, of course, non-white people have been saying this for quite some time, but there is a greater understanding now that these exams are have built-in bias just in the questions, right, that they're asking. Uh, But beyond that, not only is there bias in the way that the exams are being created, but the access to resources to study for, again, what is a very specialized sort of examination uh, is not equally distributed. Also, I mean, these are not accessible courses. This is not accessible coursework. Um, It's in addition to school, so it's not a regular part of curriculum. Um, for for students that are at the testing age either. Um, I, I know I remember that moment realizing that some of my like white counterparts had tutors just as part of their regular weekly, you know, education support outside of yeah. school. And you think about, especially in high school, anyone that has a job um, or has like caretaking duties in their families. I mean, it's just like wildly inaccessible for any number of reasons. And it wasn't until like COVID really that there, and, and it was, this kind of equalizing moment in terms of everyone having this moment to recognize how education was not sort of set up to withstand something like a pandemic, even though we had all of these virtual tools, right, that it just was not designed and that the classroom learning that was happening and people being able to kind of monitor a bit more of the dynamics between teachers and their students and their child, uh, it, it really kind of pulled the veil back a bit, I think, on those classroom dynamics that were happening in some ways, too. And, of course, there's even greater questions about accessibility to the Internet, to secure internet, uh, stable internet connections and microphones and all of these other things that uh, people are like, oh, yeah, well, everybody has a smartphone. Everybody has, you know, headphones or whatever, a laptop. And uh, so, you know, these are but this is the thing is that these are um, factors that were always at play. Uh, How we manage to hide 
the the real, I guess, pitfalls, the the ways that the education system is actively failing um, students, and you know, no pun intended whatsoever, that it's actively failing certain uh, segments of uh, students, particularly Black students, Black male students. Uh, we we can't. Uh, there's a lot to get into just with the demographics of who is being targeted for what. But by yeah. and large, it's Black students across the board, across gender expression, across sexuality, across um, you know class, uh, in a lot of ways too, that are ultimately bearing the brunt of some of the worst aspects of our education system, both private and public. And do yeah. you believe, Liz, you know, you talked a lot about how um, when the one of the maybe unintended or results of um, desegregation of schools is that our public school system did away and disposed of a lot of Black teachers and a lot of Black schools. So, you know, now decades later after this landmark legislation, you still sort of see this disenfranchisement of Black teachers and Black teachers and also just Black schools um, receiving less resources and less funding. Can you talk a little bit about like not only what happened to Black teachers as a result of Brown versus Board of Education, but what's the state of Black teachers and educators are now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So the... So that was really one of the kind of catalysts for me to getting into this, uh, my interest in this piece of legislation and how it attempted to right the ship um, in an education system that was predicated on like the illegality of black literacy, right? It was illegal for slaves to learn how to read. So if, if that's like sort of where we're starting with uh, the education system as it was created in the US, we have to kind of remember that uh, education was illegal um, in certain respects from the very beginning of, um, you know, so kidnapped Africans, et cetera. So, um, when we talk about erasure for Black teachers and this legislation that happened, again, all of these photos that we see of these desegregation sort of moments are Black students, right? A small number, very vulnerable, small number of Black students being bused to predominantly white or all white schools. And Nowhere in those photos or nowhere in these histories do you get, uh, oh, and so these Black teachers were uh, moved to a white school where they became, you know, administrators or principals or any of that. No, that that did not happen. This was a one way transfer. Uh, right. And the result of which was, again, putting black students into a very hostile, very vulnerable uh, situation in white schools and then eventually just sort of closing down the black schools after you know a lack of funding uh, a loss of student body and you see this happening in other places now even to this day again kind of coming back to new york uh city public schools the idea of consolidating schools in certain areas shutting down certain schools these are not happening to predominantly white schools. It's not happening in private schools. Mm -hmm. uh, it's happening to public schools with a predominantly non-white, mostly black, again, population. Um, and so these people just lost their jobs. 
they, that was it. And they were not hired. <laughs> you have a ton of these segregation academies, right? These, these private schools that were created in response to the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court ruling. These segregation academies, they're not going on a hiring spree of Black educators or Black administrators either. And so this really just becomes a population of people that kind of disappear in some ways from the education system, some of them really forever. I mean, it has this very lasting impact uh, to this day. And so um, I think that that is really, when we talk about how, how that shows up, Currently, again, the population of teachers across the U.S., it's upwards of 70% of them identify or are white women. And so the effect that that has on mirroring, and that is you know, a student being able to come into a classroom and have someone that looks like them in a position of power, whether it is their teacher, whether it is, you know, an administrator or principal or so on, that that instance of mirroring that's happening uh, for white students that in itself alone can have such a positive effect on learning um, mm. and acculturation that at the very baseline, that's not happening. And so uh, we I don't think we can really assume that anything positive can really grow from what has been such a sort of poisoned system. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. And with considering that like historical context and also where we are today, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what are your thoughts on uh, who I keep calling Rob DeSantis, but I've heard his name is Ron DeSantis. Um, What are your (laughs) thoughts on you know, the trying to stop schools from not saying gay or from, from stop them from saying gay to, you know, uh, stopping AP African-American history, which we could get into a whole conversation about AP courses, period, why they even need to exist, but uh, the college board as well. But, the money grab that that is. Right. I'm curious to what you think about that from, you know, from this perspective, too. Yeah, so... <sighs> A deep sigh, I guess, first. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, I would say by and large that, um, so much of this is like posturing, uh, a lot of these, like the legislation that's coming out around, like, we can't say this and don't say that and don't teach this. These are not things that were happening to begin with in a lot of these environments. I mean, ask the students who are, uh, sort of represented in these groups, whether or not they have ever felt a disconcerted effort to be represented in a classroom discussion or in course material, course curriculum. Um, This is really like a bandwagon effect. It's a talking point that um, legislators can use to garner support from, you know, a base of scared white parents, white Christian parents, which again, Christian Academy was just a euphemism for segregation Academy at the time when segregation academies were being pressured into not identifying as such. And so this is just part of a long tradition of one, 
you know, weaponizing Christianity in education, uh, and then right. two, just creating an environment that is hostile enough so that eventually you don't have to say race, you know, you don't have to say gay, you don't have to say these things, and it the dog whistle alone will will do the work. Um, I personally am very uh, interested in a piece of legislation recently that Utah's governor uh, signed a bill banning gender affirming care for transgender youth. But the sort of other part of that was that um, they're also allowing families to receive money to pay for education outside of the public school system. And so this is. Can you say that again? Okay, yeah. So the uh, Utah's Republican governor, um, Spencer Cox, recently signed a bill that bans youth from receiving gender affirming health care and allows family to receive money to pay for education outside of the public school system. And so I think this is this is again that sort of stacking and conflation of these issues, uh, the, the same sort of thing that you saw with the segregation academies, where it was taxpayer dollars that went into funding parents that wanted their kids to go to Christian academies, which again was just a euphemism for segregation academies. And it was the same sort of playbook. And this is legislation from, you know, the 50s and the 60s in anticipation of or in reaction to Brown v. Board of Education. It is a way to consolidate power and money into uh, a safe space for for white people for and, and to fund white supremacy and so it's like the bands and the money these are all to me this is sort of again that underside of philanthropy and um, philanthropic endeavors and fundraising and annual funds and alumni engagement and all of these kind of terms that were um, really just a, a guise for white people to use money to influence, uh, to have influence, to spread influence and sustain, maintain, hoard, you know, power, resources. Yep. Uh, and the best way to do that is obviously one of the best ways to do that is through philanthropy uh, <laughs> because of its implied benevolence when so often it is anything but uh, mm -hmm. and it gets expressed by uh, donors, scholarship, grants, privatized funding that is uh, almost it's like the safer route. You don't want to do a super PAC, right? Or you don't want to give to a particular senator, right? Or you don't want to be seen cozying up to this particular, you know, politician. Great. This is a great way to do the same thing. Just make it about schools. Just make it about education. And it's like this safe space for people to come in and exercise these really racist, these very like bigoted, very violent kinds of movements. And that's why a piece of legislation like Brown v. Board of Education is still like still kind of shakes the nation a bit at its core in terms of, in terms of what the core beliefs are about the right to education and things like AP you know courses what it does it mean to have advanced uh, education in a subject that we don't 
want people learning about at all, you know, and so AP uh, Black history or, you know, don't say gay, these things are just a way to kind of dance around this greater issue that, you know, we, Black people don't deserve a well-rounded education with people that they can identify with, with a history that is completed with their stories, um, with uh, language courses that reflect their dialects, with, yeah. you know, any sort of consideration for what Black culture brings to the American imagination. And the school is such an easy place to control that that happening. And so I'm always really invested in legislation that affects or is coming out of particularly public schools and using that same playbook to fund private education uh, and who then makes it right into those academies, into those private schools. Uh, it's a very clear demonstration of the mission. Big time. And it's also a clear demonstration of the 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 lengths that white people and white institutions will go to in order to make sure that black people cannot shore up power um, in our communities and have power um, and are able to self-determine the type of education that our children receive and our role in dispensing that. Um, it's the same reason, like you said, why white people feel like it's a much easier and, and a lower or lesser lift for them to you know, infiltrate, you know, a, a school boards, which is what the new white supremacist project is, is now, which is Steve mm -hmm. Bannon and other high profile white supremacists saying, look, you know, politics ain't really working for us. Let's go to the school board and essentially, you know, try to forward our agendas there. Um, but the whole name of the game is just to, for white people to have power. And I think the, the, the way that they do that is to make sure that we are unable um, to have the same means or to exercise the same means of shoring up power for our community and for ourselves, um, because who would they then have power over? And education is a huge side of that from what I'm hearing. From. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. 100% a tool yeah. of the state. Yep. Yes. Yes. And yes. mistaken from that. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Right, exactly. And um, I, I mean, the alumni boards and board of trustees and, you know, board of associates, all of these various boards, I mean, they are created very deliberately and stacked with very specific demographic of people. And um, they exercise without any real oversight, they exercise an enormous amount of control over curriculum, over admissions. Um, it, it, it really is like the soft power that they extend in behind the scenes at some of these institutions is enormous. And while the fundraising and development staff and these people, you know, professionals that work every day with these major donors, they're aware of the influence. Um, I find particularly at private schools, uh, you know, the head of school really is not the person with the most influence mm -hmm. at the school. The, it's the major donors really do have, I would say even the director of development um, in some ways has greater power at a private school than the head of school does because it's the board, it's the donor, it's those people that choose the head of school and yep. 
they're not going to choose someone that is, of course, it's not going to represent their interests well. And so creating, you know, a DEI program or support or groups or advisory boards uh, that don't have any, uh, they don't have any effect on like the board or that don't have any effect on uh, making it more transparent as to where some of these anonymous, large anonymous donations come from. There's no transparency there. Uh, then essentially this, you know, the DEI work just becomes a therapy session. It becomes somewhere for them to deposit the angry black people with complaints, you know, send them to a focus group, let them have a conversation, conduct a study, a climate study of the terrible environment at your school, and then submit the results, write that report, present to the board, you know, and then that's it. Everybody gets a paycheck. Everybody gets a paycheck and gets to go home. Uh, yep, at yep. the end of the day and you know some white person gets to add this to their cv and so on and so forth and then they get you know selected for a board and, and now they're the diverse person on the board of associates at their you know institution at their alma mater or something like that and so again they just sort of feed this ecosystem where no matter what <laughs> no matter what sort of progressive um attempts are made to undermine or challenge the power of uh, donors and um, the philanthropic of uh, philanthropic undercurrent of our education of private education system it, it really ultimately gets subsumed back into the the same the same conversations the same issues uh, and it's it, it, period and so it really it really, it can be disheartening in some ways, but I think the key will be continually shining a light is really the best the best thing that we can do um, to force these things to the surface so that people have to have the conversation. And I, I mean, I'm personally, I'm very involved in my alumni groups and um, I go to all the meetings and reunion class chair and all of these things. And it's very, it can be very difficult and doing this research um, for my dissertation on engaging alumni from marginalized communities um, and what that looks like. All of the research shows that it, it has to do, our involvement as alumni has to do with our experiences as students, right? That seems to make perfect sense. And so when you alienate a whole group or many groups of students from marginalized backgrounds already in society, then you don't have to deal with them later on as alumni. Uh, they don't give, so they don't have any worth or power in the institution. Um, and they're not being cultivated because no one wants to find out what those experiences were like. Like no one wants to talk to uh, an alum who graduated in the class of you know, 68, a black alum from the class of 68 at a private school because they likely had a terrible experience um, and it would expose some really ugly truths. Um, yeah. And so it's like strategically there is this whole, I, I feel like there's an agreement, an unspoken agreement to just 
focus on our major donors? What what do we think a philanthropist looks like? You know, it's like the Monopoly Man or the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts or whoever these people are. It's, these are who we think of. Yeah, right. Daddy Warbucks. These are philanthropists, right? But these people have amassed wealth through like terrible violence um, and exploitation in our systems. And yeah, and so then that's all the money. That's that. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. follow you if you follow the money, you have all the answers. <laughs> right, exactly. Pretty much. What so where this is like such a wealth of knowledge and it always is. What are some supplemental resources that you can offer folks to go and read about in including your dissertation? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, the dissertation when it's done, honey. Um that that'll be the I, I will say just almost as a side note, one thing about doing a dissertation on a subject like this, and I attend a PWI as well, is that there is an element personally to my mind of surveillance in doing this kind of work under uh, academic institutions. And I know that, you know, both of you have experience with that, where you're kind of brought in to do something that people think is fun and sexy and innovative and um, is really going to disrupt, right, all of these like very flashy words. And then you actually start to do that work Um, (laughs) and people's attitudes change dramatically and so I will just say that almost as a shout out to anybody doing doctoral level research especially and feeling like you're not getting the support of your institution because the work you're doing could call into question their integrity like stick with it or like don't but at the end of the day like this is your uh, intellectual property and you don't need an institution to get it out there. And so I would just, as someone who's deep in the trenches on that work right now and, you know, question myself about its ultimate validity at the end of the day, uh, I just want to put it out there and also thank both of you uh, for doing these kinds of, you know, doing these interviews, doing this work that allows people to speak to their expertise, to speak to their research or their passions um, without the apparatus and the surveillance of an institution that is really invested on either profiting from it or, you know, quashing it all together. So I'll, I'll just sort of say that and as a, as yeah. a thank you, as a warm thank you, gratefulness and humbleness really to, to you and all of the people that participate in this project each year. Um, but so that said, uh, I think, so a couple of places, the Southern Education Foundation has uh, a great, uh, you know, they have a great website, lots of great resources that talk about like the history of education, the history of private schools. Um, and they also link out to a number of uh, resources just for people that like want to get a wide or a broad overview um, of these of these issues. Um, and kind of take their own research from there. Uh, another, I will say, if it's okay for me to shout out another podcast, if that's yeah, if that's fine. Okay, sure. Um, nice White Parents is a podcast. I believe it's like produced with uh, in collaboration with NPR. But Nice White Parents, absolutely love it. It does focus on uh, the New York City public school, yep. public private school system. Um, it's incredible. It talks a lot about, again, that PTA, alumni boards, development, fundraising, uh, kind of the intersection of those worlds. And um, I think that is also just, again, something that's really accessible for most people to just, you know, listen to an episode or two, take from it 
what you will. Um, and in general, I would say it, as as dull as it might be, just looking up the like legislation related to your own home state's uh, school board or your county or your parish. I know for for those of you that live in Louisiana, your parish, uh, the the school board um, meetings and the meeting minutes and um, the legislation that's just come out recently that might affect your immediate communities is really going to be the best resource as a starting point for ways that you can engage like right now locally uh, in your public school system. And uh, another thing that I would also just urge people to do is, you know, be in touch with the people like from the schools that you have personally attended and understand that your experience there is valuable historical like data that makes a difference in how this conversation is had uh, because so so much of this uh, history uh, so much of the information out there has been shaped by white people and has been washed by white people you know it's been whitewashed in a lot of ways and so uh i like to value the personal narrative um as as part of the historical archive and so i guess to that end i i can i, I feel like there's a thousand other resources but those are sort of, i think like kind of broad those ones are, that are, are easily perfect. accessible yeah no those are perfect i think you know highlighting the personal narrative as a part of historical archive is really necessary because people diminish it um, and think yeah. that we need, you know, we're in the the world of needing a lot of proof and evidence and it being backed up by tons of research by white institutions. And this is it, this is great, a reminder that your personal story is just as valuable as anyone else's. But Absolutely. I just want to thank you immensely yes. um, for being a part of this project again for being in this conversation, for doing the work that you're doing. Um, it is not easy from one person that's in academia to another. And it is valid. Um, mm. We know how challenging this is um, to be navigating these spaces and when you are actually talking about disrupting them um, mm -hmm. and being in them as a disruption. So we just thank you so much, Liz, and appreciate you for being on the podcast and I hope y'all go and support Liz's work. Which will um, be in the description of this podcast where you can find Liz and keep up with her and everything that she's doing and open your coin purse and support um, Liz's ongoing work and building critical consciousness around how we can educate to liberate our Black students and have that education be in our own hands and informed greatly by the follies of the past, including um, Brown versus Board of Education. So thank you so much, Liz. I wish we could thank you. Conversation, but you can continue the conversation by following Liz. Liz, tell people where to follow you. Um, I I am really only on Instagram, <laughs> so you can follow me there on Instagram at fem f e m underscore noir n o i r. Gotcha. That's where I post all my fun stuff. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Liz. Thank okay. you, thank you. Take Love care. You. Love you. Talk to you soon. I Talk to you soon. All right. Yeah, for all these blues. Like I'm here to do my soul. Jazz ball. Straight to face. Straight to face.